Father, there are loves and there are joys that is, we just heard in that song that are unfathomable. Loves that we have only heard faint whispers of. A love that we have only heard as a distant echo that awaits all of us who believe in Jesus. On that day in which we are called to glory when we enter into your presence, no longer will we believe in a God of great and immense love by faith. No longer will we believe merely that there is a God who will one day give us joy and we trust it by faith, but one day, one day, we will see you. And we will behold you. And as we see you, still bearing the wounds of the cross, still bearing the wounds in your side, then in that moment, Lord, what will wash over us is joy, unspeakable joy, for so deep a love that has sought us and saved us. And until that time, Lord, would you preserve us in yourself? God, would you keep us ever mindful of the gospel, the good news for great sinners like us, that there is a great God of immense mercy who's willing to forgive all who acknowledge their guilt, repenting of their sins and trusting in you. God, these kinds of thoughts are so lofty. They're so huge. We are betrayed by the frailty of our words to properly and adequately express what they mean to us and for us. And God, it's no wonder that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words because the, the truth of your love is just too deep for human words. It had to be seen. And so God, as we look upon the cross of Jesus, what we behold there is love. What we behold there is that Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. Would you remind us this day, Lord, of your overwhelming love? God, conquer our rebel hearts. Grant to us all that we need to faithfully follow you. And God, be kind to us by drawing us nearer to yourself, that we may be by your side, which is the place, as Psalm 16 says, where there are pleasures forevermore. So Father, thank you for what you have done for us, what you continue to do, what you will yet do, and for the reminders this day of all that you are. We thank you, we love you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Ah, oh, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you all this day. Um, I trust that you came early in order to see uh, a baptism that took place. We had four folks get baptized. It was rather chilly, I'm not gonna lie. It's a little bit cold, I'm not gonna lie. And I'm glad I wasn't getting baptized. Uh, I'm not gonna lie. But um, it was kind of funny because some, some folks were like, you know what, I'd rather not get baptized in January. I might wanna think about it in March. And uh, some of the folks that got baptized in January were like, man, I'm so glad I got baptized in January. It was actually warmer back then. So anyways, um, I trust that uh, some of you who were there uh, enjoyed that time of hearing uh, testimony of God's faithfulness and grace in folks' lives. So 
Um, we are going to continue our series in the book of Hosea, and I want to invite you to go ahead and make your way to Hosea chapter 11. And as you do that, uh, just a couple quick announcements for you. Uh, today, we have one of our ministry partners. His name is Zach Powell. He's here uh, to meet you all and would be more than willing to, to introduce himself, and you have an opportunity to learn more about his ministry. He and his family are in France, and they're ministering to displaced peoples in France, and he's also uh, helping to lead a ministry in North Africa uh, with a mission organization called Servant Partners. Uh, so he's here with us today. Um, I encourage you to stop by and thank him for his service, uh, but also I encourage you to come tomorrow night during our uh, prayer and praise time with our Global Outreach Department to hear more about what the Lord's doing in and through his ministry. Uh, some of you have asked questions about uh, an upcoming trip that we have planned to go to the Bible lands of uh, Egypt and Jordan and Israel. If you have uh, questions and you want more information, we have another information meeting next Sunday at 6.30 p.m. Uh, it's a time for you to learn about what the trip is all about, its cost, expectations, things like that. Um, and uh, it'll be a good way to, for you to get fully informed as to what that trip's all about. Um, yeah, so I wanna let you know that. And then lastly is this. As you well know, during the summers, uh, every year we have a ministry called Vacation Bible School, VBS. And we're always looking for many, many uh, leaders to help put this ministry on. And so this is our team, our, our season in which we are recruiting a team of leaders. We need about 200 people uh, to make this ministry possible. And in the days of COVID and whatever, I don't know what has happened, uh, many of us have lost our volunteerism fervor. And uh, even when we need a handful of folks, we can't seem to find them. So 200 is daunting, but we're trusting the Lord. And I'm asking you all to prayerfully consider that you would uh, give up a week in order to come and serve uh, at our VBS. We know that Satan hates families. We know that Satan hates marriages. We know that Satan actually wants to uh, eat and devour our children, spiritually speaking. And we know that uh, it really is a dark world. And so in an effort to combat the darkness in this world, we have a ministry called VBS where we seek to introduce kids for the first time or to remind them, if they already know of Jesus, of the precious and great truths we have in the gospel. And we wanna invite you to come and partner with us in this ministry. So we have a table out front. If you are interested and you are prayerfully considering whether or not you wanna serve in that, uh, you can also uh, sign up online. Uh, but I do wanna uh, let you know we do have this need and it'll be great. Uh, if we could get more than 200, but we need at least 200. So be prayerfully considering that. All right, hopefully by now you found your way to Hosea chapter 11. We're gonna continue in this series and uh, the title of this message today, Mercy and Judgment Intention. What we're gonna see is uh, God chooses to reveal himself and his heart. And what we see in this passage, I think is very interesting because we see God where he is determined to judge his people for their sins, but he is simultaneously determined to give them mercy. How is that determinations going to be resolved? How can God be both judging and merciful? And we're gonna see this kind of flesh out for us uh, through this chapter. You know, one of the things in my life, uh, and maybe you can relate to this, one of the things that has been one of the uh, challenging experiences is just kind of not knowing where you stand. And what I mean by that is when I was in college playing sports, I, did, I didn't know necessarily where I stood with the coaches, whether I was a starter, whether I was a backup, like what, what's going on with that? 
Um, sometimes there wasn't a lot of communication, and so I just kind of, I didn't know. And it, it was disorienting. I didn't know practice, any given practice, any given game, uh, what my role was going to be. I didn't know what my standing was. Or I remember when Heather and I were applying for a bunch of different positions at different churches, and I'd be on the phone with them, and they're like, you're a great candidate. We really love you. And it's like, great. Next thing you know, we get an email, and you're like, yeah, not so much. And you're like, what? I don't know what my standing is. Like, this is, I thought you liked me. Um, or the other one is the relationship. Sometimes we just don't know where we stand with other people. Uh, we ask ourselves the question, like, do they like me? Um, will they accept me? Uh, am I the kind of person that they want to be friends with? And maybe there's a romantic interest. Is, is this the kind of person that is interested in me? And you just don't know where you stand. And when you don't have this kind of answer to where you stand with people or your situations, it can be disorienting. You're kind of just at a loss, and you're kind of wavering. However, um, what makes it even worse is when you have certain insecurities about yourself. Um, you don't think you're particularly likable. You don't think you're beautiful enough or handsome enough or strong enough or smart enough. You have a series of rejections in your past, and you feel like you're an outcast, and you feel like you're not wanted. You don't belong anywhere. And so when you have these insecurities coupled with, I don't know where I stand, it creates a situation in which every day we wake up and we're clamoring and we're longing to answer the question, who am I? Like, what, what is my life amounting to? Like, what am I accomplishing? And what we need when we're in these moments, and I think all of us have experienced that at times. Many of us experience it more than others, and probably some of us gathered in this place today have woke up this morning with these questions. And what we need most is we need an outside voice who can authoritatively declare to us, this is what you're worth. This is who you are. This is your standing. This is where you are in terms of my affections. You belong here. Because when you have that kind of outside voice authoritatively telling you where you're standing and telling you how much you're worth, it creates a permanence and a stability in your life like nothing else. And when you wake up in the morning having a sense of stability, of permanence, it becomes the foundation for building your identity and living your life accordingly. And what we've seen throughout the book of Hosea is that Israel has been described as an object of God's deep love. I've loved you. And yet at the same time, we've seen Israel described as an object of God's wrath and judgment. So God says, I love you. And he says, how dare you? So which is it? Where does Israel stand with God? In this section of Hosea, we're going to see God reveal his heart. We're going to see how God is torn between his love for his people and the need to judge them because of their sins. And there's this tension in God's heart, and it's very real. But what we're going to see in Hosea is not only where Israel stood with God and what God had to say about them, but through that, we're, we're, what we're going to see today is how God reveals our standing with him, and also answering the question who we are. And he's gonna be the authoritative outside voice that determines once and for all the answer to life's most important questions. 
And he is the one who provides the stability. He is the one that provides the permanence. He is the one that provides you with an answer to the question that haunts you oftentimes when you wake up. Who am I? What is my life? And when God speaks authoritatively about these kinds of questions, it becomes the foundation on which we can build our identity and our life. So we're going to look in Hosea chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. You ready? Here we go. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by the arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness and with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. I bent down to them and fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, he will not raise them up at all. But how can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am a God and not man, a holy one in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. They shall go after the Lord, and he will roar like a lion. And when he roars, his children will come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. By and large, we're going to start in verses 1 through 4. And what we see in these verses is very positive, very beautiful. And what we do is we get a glimpse of God's affections for his people. So look at this in verse one. When Israel was a child, that is when Israel was a new developing nation, they didn't quite have the full identity of what it meant to be Israel yet. God had not yet redeemed them. He had not yet made a covenant with them through Moses. He had not yet brought them into the promised land. When Israel was a child in its infancy, God says, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. What we see here is God calling Israel out of Egypt and doing so because he loves them. What's striking to me is if you would consider the intimacy of this language. If you think about it throughout the book of Hosea, what we've seen is God has employed this language of marriage where he is the husband and he says that his people is like his bride, his wife. He's intimately connected with them uh, and they with him. And they, they know each other deeply and they know each other intimately. They know um, just how each other ticks. And now what God is using is a different kind of a relational connection. And that is the connection between a father and a son. Elsewhere, God will also describe himself as like a hen who watches over her brood of chicks. And so we see this motherly tenderness of God. We see this fatherly protection of God. We see this intimacy of God as husband and we as his bride. We see all of these things. But 
in this text, what God is doing is he is using this relationship between a father and a son. And why is he doing that? When Moses was called by God to help lead the nation of Israel out of bondage from Egypt, God told Moses, this is what you're to say to Pharaoh. Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. A firstborn son, by the way, is the rightful heir, is the lawful heir of all that the father has. So when we see the biblical descriptions about God's people being a son, it does not mean that God only cares about men. It means that God is trying to communicate something about himself and about his people, namely that he is like a father who possesses great possessions and wealth, who then is going to transfer that to his rightful heir, which is the firstborn son. So to all who are in the company called God's people, you are to consider yourself like a firstborn son, which means all of God's possessions, all of God's protection, and all of God's presence is ultimately going to come upon you. That is your inheritance. That is what is promised for you. By contrast, God says, you Egyptian and Pharaoh particularly, if you don't let my firstborn son Israel go, then you won't have any firstborn sons because I'm going to kill him, which means all of your wealth will come to nothing. I'm going to judge you. Now, why in the world would God call Israel his son? What is so special about Israel? Was there something that they did where God was like, oh, wow, look at you guys. You're amazing. Is it because of their hidden potential? Is it because they had a great future ahead of them and God looked into the future and discerned, oh, look at them. I could probably use them. Yeah, this will work. And we get our answer in Deuteronomy 7. You are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasure possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Now, why? Well, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. So what's the answer? Why does God call Israel his son? And why does God redeem his son Israel from Egypt? And the answer is, it is for love's sake. It wasn't their hidden potential. It wasn't their future success. It wasn't that they had earned it. It wasn't that they deserved it. It is simply God loved them. And there was nothing lovable about them. Just think about that for a second. We talk all the time about unconditional love. Oh, you know, like I have unconditional love for you. Probably not. Probably not. 
Because unconditional love is like when people treat you absolutely the worst imaginable possible way consistently and always and you still keep loving. And you and I, mm, we say that, yeah, I just love people, I love people. And then all of a sudden somebody does something to you, you're like, you're gonna get it. You're like, okay, <laughs> Mr. Love everyone. Now for Israel, their primary identity as the people of God is established by this most amazing event called the Exodus. This nation of Israel, small as they were, not warranting God's love at all, but God in his free grace and mercy pours his love upon this nation. He is now going to set them apart to be his own people and the means for that, which means the way in which he's going to set them apart and he's going to call them to himself is through the Exodus. That is the redemption that he accomplishes in Egypt. You see, in Egypt, the people of Israel were in bondage. They were enslaved. They had no freedom. They had no hope. Similarly, you and I who are Christians today our identity is built upon the very foundation that is similar to the very foundation that Israel built their identity. And what is that? Redemption. Israel was redeemed out of Egypt, out of bondage. Likewise, those who are Christians are identified as those who have been redeemed from the bondage of sin through Jesus Christ. So Israel receive their, new, their, their identity through the exodus, through redemption. And those of us who are Christians here today, we also receive our identity through redemption or a new exodus that's in Jesus Christ. Let me put this together for you because this is theologically significant and you must understand this. The Apostle Paul says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, Born of a woman, born under the law. Why was he sent? To redeem those who were under the law. And what was the purpose of this redemption? So that we might receive adoption as sons. So when Israel was redeemed out of Egypt, they became his son. When we are redeemed out of the bondage of sin, through Jesus, the true son, we become adopted sons. And because you are sons, God sends his spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. There is now a new and profound intimacy with those who have been redeemed by Jesus Christ. You are no longer an alien to the citizen or an alien to the kingdom of God. You're a citizen of the kingdom of God. You're no longer somebody on the outside have to be invited to the family meal. You got a seat at the table. But it's not because you've earned it. It's because God freely and lovingly adopts you and then seats you at his table. In verse 7, here's the grand conclusion. So you're no longer a slave. That's identity language. Do you see it? But you are a son. And if you are a son, then you are an heir through God. All of God's unblushing promises that he has given to us through the Bible are yours in Jesus Christ. 
Not because you deserved it. Not because you were awesome. Not because you are particularly lovable. Not because you have done something to catch God's attention. He's like, whoa, you're way better than I thought. God simply looks at you, miserable and wretched as you are, and says, here's my love. And then he adopts you into his family. Seats you at his table. Gives you his name. And more than all that, gives you his spirit. So that you can cry out, you're my father. <laughs> if that doesn't give you goosebumps, you're, something's wrong. This redemption that I'm talking about for Old Testament people of God was through the Exodus, but for the New Testament people of God, it, it is accomplished by the shed blood of Jesus. And it's his blood that cleanses us from sin. It is by his death and resurrection that the Holy Spirit is enabled to come to us and to come into our hearts and actually does the adopting work so that the intimacy that we crave with God is ours. And once again, what's the motivation behind all this? Why does God do this? And you need to see it. Do you see what kind of love the Father has given to us? Well, how do I perceive the love of God? How do I know God loves? Well, it's because he calls you his children. One of the greatest evidences of God's love for us is that he is willing <laughs> to take us into his family. That may not be shocking to you, but there is a reason, brothers and sisters, there is a reason why in our society today there are so many children in foster care. It is because we don't know if they're the kind of kids we would want in our family. For many of us, that's what we're thinking. I don't have the time or the resources. What if they're a crazy kid? What if they wreak havoc upon our family? And yet God is the one who looks at us and says, I'll have you anyway. And you know, you know how deep of a grace that truly is because you know how wicked you truly are. You know it? What a grace. It's unbelievable. He did it because he simply loves us. And so Paul, what he does is he puts this all together for us in probably the, the most beautiful section of Scripture. I shouldn't have said that. It's debatable. Yeah, anyways. Here's what Paul says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And what was the purpose of why God chose us in Christ? It's so that we would have a new identity and that is to be holy and blameless. You see, in love, God predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. 
Let me read that again. This is not my words. In love, God predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. God adopts you. He adopts you not just so you can generically, you know, have access to God's farm. He adopts you so you can have intimate relationship with himself. And the reason why he adopts you so that you can have intimacy with himself is because he has chosen you. And why has he chosen you? Because he loves you. This is according to the purpose of God's will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which means, brothers and sisters, the praise of his glorious grace, that's what's emblazoned in the little lobby area. If you go out and you turn around and look up right on the second balcony, you can see it to the praise of his glory, which he has blessed us in the beloved. It's in Jesus that we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. So what Paul's saying in this text is that love, love properly motivates God to predestine us to be adopted as children of God, giving us a new identity to be distinguished from the world as holy and blameless people. All of this accomplished by the redeeming blood of Jesus Christ. So like Israel, it is not because of our hidden potential or our future success or because we have earned it or deserved it. God simply chose us because he loves us. That's it. And yet we see in verse 2, the more that God is calling his son to himself and the more he's calling them to be intimate with him in relationship, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and kept offering, uh, burning offerings to idols. So even though God is here wooing these people to himself, there are people who see what God is doing and calling them to faith in him. And they're like, we don't want that. Ugh. Get away from me. And I think the reason why they were so pushed away is because they did not view God as a loving father. They probably viewed God as a meticulously life-interrupting annoyance. I just want to do my thing. And you keep putting your nose into my business. Can you just back off? You see, we need to clearly see God's love if we are going to develop intimacy with God. If you're here today and your intimacy with God is either hindered or it's been cheapened recently or it's becoming shallower, what I would say is that more than likely your view of God's love for you is diminishing. And as your view of God's love for you diminishes in proper proportion, your intimacy with God diminishes. And until you see God as truly loving, you will conclude that he is extremely harsh. And an extremely harsh father is not one that you want to develop intimacy with. 
The 17th century Puritan John Owen, he writes this. He says, so long as the father is seen as harsh, judging and condemning, the soul of man is filled with fear and dread every time it comes to him. So in scripture, we read of sinners fleeing and hiding from God. But when God, who is the father, is seen as father, filled with love, the soul is filled with love to God in return. So how can you and I see more of God as loving Father? And I think we get a glimpse in verses three and four. Look at this in verse three. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I love this imagery. Let me help you uh, develop this. How many of you seen this? And I know dad's here. You've probably done this before because I know I have. You have a little frumpy, chunky little baby that's trying to figure out how to walk but his little bow leg is not strong enough yet, and so it's like teetering there, boom, right on his butt every time. So what you do is you put your hands out, and then the, that little child will see your two big old fingers in its face, and it will realize handlebars, <laughs> and those little baby fingers will grasp upon those big, strong, fatherly finger, and you will raise that child up to its feet. You will place that child right between your legs so it will not teeter or totter and you will walk with that child one step at a time. And then that baby will get ahead of itself and be like, let's run, and try to lean forward, and you will gently lean them back. <laughs> You're not ready for this. And when that child is going at full steam, heading straight for the corner of the coffee table as a loving father, <laughs> let's go this way. And God says, I was the one that helped you learn how to walk. I'm the kind of father that takes you by the hand and guides you and leads you. But also God is the kind of father that as you are being led, maybe you let go and you're like, let's see you walk. And that baby starts going and next thing you know, kaboom. Tears start coming, screams. Mom in the other room, what are you doing? <laughs> and that dad will scoop up that little chunky baby and will kiss that owie and look in that baby's face and shush him or her, bring that baby close to his chest, hold her or him tightly. Comfort. It's okay, daddy's got you. And that's what God does. You don't, you don't know it because you're too young to realize it. But he says, I'm the one that healed you. I'm the one that comforted you when you fell. I'm the one that scoops you up in my loving arms and shushes you and calms you down. Brothers and sisters, is that not tenderness? Do you see God that way? Verse 4. I led them with cords of kindness, with bands of love. And see, now some people are like, see, he's got cords and bands. He doesn't love me. Heather and I, we, we live in a two-story house. When we moved here, our kids were not yet one years old and not yet three years old, and their rooms were upstairs. And we have wide stairs. And one of our thoughts was, uh-oh. 
Savannah was not yet one years old, could barely walk up and down the small flight of stairs, and here she is, 20 feet up. So we put a baby gate up. Did we put a baby gate up in order to prevent our children from having the time of their life? Uh, we put the baby gate up because we wanted to make sure they didn't kill themselves. <laughs> it was an act of kindness. It was an act of love. Because I do remember one of our kids, I can't remember which one of them, sitting in the living room, and then all of a sudden you hear, do-dum, 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 do-dum. <laughs> what God does is he puts boundaries. He says, go this far and no further. This is where you can go. This is where you can't. Not because he is mean, but because he is a God of great kindness. He is a God of great love. And he knows what is best for us. And that's why all of us parents, when we open the oven and we take the chocolate chip cookies out and the kid comes walking to the door, we don't go, out of love, go ahead, crawl in there. (laughs) Instead, out of love, we go, no! (laughs) And then our next image, you see this, I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. This is kind of a farming uh, image, or if you have the NIV, it'll talk about a child being caressed or brought to the cheek. It's hard in Hebrew to know what the meaning is, but you get the same idea, is that there's tenderness here. I bent down, God says to them. Don't, Don't sleep on that phrase. I bent down to them. God of the universe bends down to us. Not because we are worthy of his worship or anything like that. It is because we are so needy of him, he comes to us. And when he bends down to us, he gets on our level and it says he feeds us. I love that. It's one of my favorite times as a dad is, is uh, <laughs> I didn't always do the feeding because uh, Heather was home with the kids. But when I got to, uh, we, we would try new foods uh, and uh, you just have like carrots, smashed squash, and you're like, Bleh. and you open it, and it's like, mm-mm, ah, oh, and it's just like peas and stuff. But it was so fun to be like, mm, are you ready? And they're like, oh, my, and it just comes cascading down and stuff. But it's that idea of like, I'm going to feed you. I'm going to make sure you have what you need. So let me read John Owen again. You see, the more that we see God's love, so much more shall we delight in him. All that we learn of God will only frighten us away from him if we do not see him as a loving and merciful God. But if your heart is taken up with the Father's love as his chief uh, property of his nature, it cannot help but choose to be overpowered, conquered, and embraced by him. So do this. Here's what John Owens would have you do. Set your thoughts on the eternal love of the Father and see if your heart is not aroused to delight in him. Sit down for a while at his delightful spring of living water and you will soon find its streams sweet and delightful. You who used to run from God will not now be able even for a second to keep at any distance from him for he will so satisfy you with himself. There's sweetness, there's tenderness, There's love to be had if we will see God as he wants us to be seen or wants us to see him, which is I'm a God of love.
Now, does all this talk of God's love negate the talk that he had for the last 10 chapters about his desire to punish his people? Don't, don't forget that part. Remember that? 10 chapters? You guys are like, come on, let's get over it already. We get it. Judgment, punishment, yada, yada. So let's read this, verses 5 through 7. For they shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. So what God does in verses five through seven is reiterates, reiterates his judgment. I'm gonna judge you. He said in Hosea 8.13 and Hosea 9.3 that the people are gonna go back to Egypt. And now he says they're not gonna go to Egypt, but Assyria is gonna be their king. And so what God is trying to do is communicate to us, for you it's gonna be like the old days when the people of Israel were in Egypt, except for you're not gonna be in Egypt and Pharaoh's not gonna be your ruler, you're gonna be in Assyria, and the king of Assyria is gonna be your ruler. Which means you're gonna be in bondage again. You're gonna be enslaved again. You're gonna have no freedom. And it's gonna be miserable for you. That's what's coming your way. Why? Because you have refused to return to me. And then we read in verse six, the sword, death, is gonna rage against your cities, consume the bars of your gates, which means you have no protection. You put up gates to make sure that you know, no sin gets in. And I, and I say, some of you live in gated communities, but I'm gonna say this so that way you, it helps you out. Sometimes we go to gated communities because we're like, hey, we'll keep all the nasty stuff out. No, you live there, so the nasty stuff's already there. <laughs> so the, the gate's not gonna work. And what happens is the people are gonna be devoured. And why is it? Why is it that they're gonna be devoured? It's because of their own counsels. Which means the people are not inquiring of God. God, what should we do? How should we live? Instead, they're just saying, no, 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 we gotta figure it out. We don't need God's help. And if you remember something we said last week, Judges 21, that the people, they did what was right in their own eyes. And because of that, there was great evil over the whole land. And so that's why God is gonna enact judgment. They don't want God, they're not returning to God, and they think they can do it on their own. In fact, in verse seven, we see how this all comes to be. It's because my people, God says, are bent on turning away from me. And the phrase there, bent, means that by nature they are turned in such a way that they just run away from God, just naturally. That's just how they are as people. you just bent that way which means my preferences, my desires, my inclinations, an act of the will, they're all bent towards running away from God. And so in a nutshell, Israel, who is called God's son in verse one, now in verses five through seven, are proving themselves to be a faithless son who does not deserve the inheritance that God has promised them because they have forsaken the covenant. Now, here's what is shocking to me, remarkable, really, is when you read Hosea chapter 11, I don't know if you noticed it or not, but one of these verses is actually in the Christmas story. Did you know that? So if you go to Matthew chapter 2, 
you know that Jesus was born in Bethlehem and you know that there was a star and the Magi and all that stuff. But do you remember that as Joseph and Mary laid asleep with Jesus, the baby beside them, an angel wakes up Joseph, giving him a vision because Herod had commanded that all the children two years of age, uh, all, the, all the male children two years of age or younger are to be killed. And so the angel tells Joseph, you need to run to Egypt. And so Joseph rose and took the child, that is Jesus, and his mother Mary by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. Now why did this happen? This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Why is Matthew quoting Hosea 11.1? 1? What's going on here? Think about it. God said, I called my son out of Egypt. So Jesus goes to Egypt with his parents, so that way the, pro the prophetic word would be fulfilled. Out of Egypt I call my son. Jesus is now identified in Matthew chapter 2 as the son of God. But not just any old son of God. Think about the, the uh, comparison and the contrast between Israel and Jesus. Think about it like this. Israel was redeemed out of Egypt and called to be the holy, blameless people who live distinct lives, holy lives, in front of the whole world so that way they would be light among the nations. And how did they do? <laughs> they were terrible. They failed at every turn. They proved themselves faithless at every turn. And so what you have in Matthew chapter 2 is this amazing scene in which Jesus takes upon himself this new identity as the people of Israel. So what Jesus is doing is saying the previous firstborn son, Israel, failed to obey God, failed to do all that God commanded, failed to live up to the covenant, failed to be holy, failed to be blameless, failed to be the light of the world. Jesus steps forward as the obedient and faithful son who does all of those things perfectly without failing ever. So the covenant is fulfilled. He is alone holy and blameless. He alone is worthy of all the inheritance. Jesus is the faithful son where Israel is the faithless son. Why does this matter? It matters because the, the New Testament is trying to teach us that we will rely on a whole host of things for our salvation and justification when all we need to do is look to Jesus. He's better than everything. In the book of Hebrews, just think about the, I don't know if you've read Hebrews. You should read Hebrews. Hard to read, but read it. Chapter one, angels are amazing. Nope, Jesus is better. Chapter two and three and four, Moses is better. No, he's not. Jesus is better. Well, yeah, but what about the sacrifices? Mm, wrong again. Jesus is better. What about the sacrifices? Nope, Jesus is better. What about the Levitical priesthood? Nope, Jesus is better. Yeah, but what about the blood of the bulls and goats? Nope, Jesus' blood is better. In every single imaginable way, everything which was about Israel's identity, Jesus comes along and says, I'm better. 
I am the true son. I am the faithful son. In other words, I am the new Israel. I'm the one who is the light of the nations. I am the one who fulfills the will of God. Now, for me to prove this to you, I want to continue in the book of Matthew. And this will either blow your mind or confuse you, but I think it's worth the risk. I want to show you how Jesus, this big word, recapitulates the history of Israel. Okay, what does recapitulate mean? I, hopefully you're not asleep yet. <laughs> recapitulate simply means uh, to show something in a different way. So I'm just going to show this thing, but in a different way. And so what Jesus does is he actually, as we see in the book of Matthew, he's going to take on in his own life the history of Israel. This is crazy. All right. So first, let's think about the history of Israel, just in case you, you don't know the sequence and, and, and the kind of the chronology of it. First off, what you had is God raising up a prophet who is preparing the way for redemption for the nation of Israel. And that prophet is Moses. He speaks to Moses and says, go, you're going to lead my people out of bondage. You're going to be the one who is going to lead this whole redemption thing. Next thing you know is that there is a major water event. They cross the Red Sea. And after this major water event, they go into Sinai, which is this wilderness area where we see the, the, the people eventually are going to have to wander for 40 years because they failed to resist the temptation of idol worship. And the reason why that even came to being was because Moses was up on top of a mountain hearing God's word spoken to him. And before those things happened, God was organizing the tribes according to their clan or according to their tribes in order to prepare them to go into the promised land. And then immediately after the, the, the people are well, organized and, and Moses goes on the mountain, receives the Ten Commandments, and then the people have the golden calf situation. They wander in the wilderness for 40 years. They then go to the promised land. And what ends up happening is there's a series of natural miracles where God works over nature. So the Jordan River stops, the sun stands still, walls of Jericho fall. Did you get that sequence? Did you understand those things? All right, I'm not going to read this stuff for you, but I want you to know there, there's verses here, and I'll say them. Listen to the sequence of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 12, there is a prophet who God speaks to who is sent to the people to prepare the way of redemption so that God's people will be delivered from bondage. And that prophet's name is John the Baptist. Immediately following that, in Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 to 17, there's a major water event, and that major water event is none other than the baptism of Jesus. Jesus then is sent into the wilderness for how many days? Forty. To do what? Be tempted. Did he fail? No. And then after that, the people are organized, the leaders are organized. He begins to choose his disciples. And then we read about how Jesus goes up to a mountain and speaks in the authority of God to the people. And this is followed by various miracles of God over nature. 
It's just a coincidence, though. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, you need to understand that when Matthew wrote his gospel, he did it on purpose. Out of Egypt comes my son. In other words, look to Jesus, who is the truer and better Israel, who in every way is far superior, in every way was faithful and obedient, in every way is worthy of your worship and trust. He didn't fail in the wilderness. He speaks authoritatively God's word. Jesus is the faithful son. God is the father with whom he is well pleased. The new covenant is better than the old covenant. The blood of Jesus is better than the blood of the Old Testament sacrifice. Jesus is a better priest than all the Levites of the Old Testament. Jesus is better because he fulfills all the promises of God in the Old Testament. Jesus is better because his inheritance in which we all will share by faith is a greater inheritance than what was promised in the Old Testament. We don't just get a sliver of land, we get the whole world. <laughs> That's better. In the Old Testament, God's people were born into the nation, but today, the people of God must be born again into the kingdom of God. And that happens by faith. For when we exercise faith in Jesus, we become citizens of the kingdom of God. And being citizens of the kingdom of God, we are adopted into God's family, becoming heirs of the inheritance God has promised. By faith in Jesus, we escape God's judgment. We are redeemed from our bondage to sin. And we have intimacy with God that will blow your mind. And yet we read verse 8 and 9, which shows us just the tension in God's heart. In verses one through four, I love you. Verses five through seven, I'm gonna judge you. Verse eight and nine, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? And how can I treat you like Zeboim? Now, Adma and Zeboim mean probably nothing to you unless you remember Genesis chapter 19 about Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah, two cities which are destroyed, but the other cities in the valley which are also destroyed, two of them are Adma and Zeboim. So God says, how in the world when I look upon you, my sweet, dear children, Ephraim and Israel, I've promised judgment to you, but how in the world can I bring myself to do that? I don't know how I can do that. God's heart is in turmoil. He's thinking about the situation. He loves Israel, but he also has to discipline Israel. He's ready to give mercy to them, but he's also a holy and just God. So he goes on to say, my heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. Recoil, you've had a slinky before. A recoil, you pull that slinky apart and you let it go. I love you. Oh, what are you guys doing? I have to judge you now. I'm gonna judge you, oh, but I love you so much. 
God's heart is intention. And I love this word where God reminds us, he says, my compassion grows warm and tender. The more I think about you, the warmer my affections become for you. The more tenderness is beginning to grow. I don't know about you, but I need to hear something like that. Because if I'm being honest, I mean, you can lie to yourself all you want. But I am not worthy of God. But to hear of God's compassion, warmth, and tenderness towards me, and to know that though I am unworthy of God, that I'm not worthless to God, makes all the difference. I'm not worthless. He loves me. I'm unworthy, yes, but I'm not worthless. He loves me. Why is God like this? He says, I will not execute my, my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. Well, why not? Why aren't you going to execute judgment that you've been promising? He says, because I'm God and not a man. I love this phrase. Because let's be honest, if somebody wrongs us, we are not the kind of people that go, oh, that's okay. Grace for you. We're like, oh, wait, what'd you do? Mm-hmm. Well, you're going to get it. I'm coming for you, and you're going to hate what happens. We are grievance people. But God says, I'm not a man that I should lie or a son of man that I should change my mind. Has God said, and will he not do? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? I love what Tim Chester, a pastor in the UK, writes. He says, a typical human response to being wronged is revenge. But God... He says, I'm God, I'm not a man. In other words, God's response to the sin of his people is not like human responses. The divine response to being wronged is grace. We often give people the cold shoulder until the fault is forgotten. You know what I'm talking about. I'm just gonna ignore them, find them. I'm ghosting all their text messages. But God is so much more serious about sin than we are. Sin does not simply fade away from his memory. God is a just and holy God. He must punish every sin. And so there's this tension. God is determined to judge his people with fatherly, loving discipline. And at the same time, he is de de determined to show love and compassion and mercy. So which will give? Will God just go, eh, forget it. Forget the, the judgment part. I'll just wink at sin and just pretend it didn't exist and I'll give you mercy. Or will he think, eh, I can't do the mercy thing, man, because I'm holy. I gotta go judgment. Which is it? And we have our answer in the cross of Jesus Christ. You see, the cross of Jesus Christ, that is the place in human history, in which God's determination to judge sin is actually coupled with God's determination to show loving compassion to unworthy sinners. Let me show you. For all sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. In other words, all of us have sinned, and yet any of us can be redeemed 
so long as you come to God through Jesus Christ. Because his grace is a gift to you. You don't earn it. And this Jesus, God put forward as a propitiation. Another big word. It does not mean merely that God died for you and he was at one point 100% angry with you, but because Jesus died for you, now he's at like neutral. We have to start all over again. Propitiation means that Jesus was put forward as an atoning sacrifice for sin, so God's 100% anger with you is brought not merely to zero, but is brought all the way to the other side where he is 100% for you. And God put forward his son in order for God to be radically for you because of his son's bloodshed on the cross, which must be received by faith. You don't come to God full of good works and good intentions. You come to God empty-handed. I got nothing. And why did God do this? It was to show his righteousness or his holiness. Remember he said that in, uh, in Hosea chapter 11. I'm not a man. I'm holy. Because in his divine forbearance or patience, God had passed over the former sins. This was to show his holiness or righteousness at the present time. And what was God trying to accomplish by showing his holiness in Jesus dying for us? It's so that God himself or Jesus himself might be just. The word just there means he is going to adequately punish sin because God is a just God. He cannot wink at sin. He cannot ignore it like you and I often try to do. Just brush it under the rug and hope it goes away. You know, time heals all wounds. We're just kind of over time. It just kind of eh, goes away. No, it doesn't. It festers. It gets infected. You got gangrene. Got cut, cut it off. So God is just. He will not let any sin go unpunished. And the evidence of God's justice is the fact that he put his own son, who is perfect and sinless, on a cross to take upon his wrath and his just anger. But that's what is so shocking. Not only was Jesus crucified and killed on the cross in order to show that God is serious about sin, but at the same time, it was to show that God is the justifier. In other words, God didn't put us on the cross. He put himself on the cross so that in substituting himself in our place, he not only gets to show his just wrath and holiness, he gets to show his severe mercy. He said, I don't want you on the cross. I'm going to the cross myself. And there I will be spiked. There I will die. There I will bleed for you. So I am exercising my full wrath and exercising my full mercy. And you're simply a bystander who receives all of the reward. Oh my gosh, this is unbelievable. 
So how is the tension between God's determination to judge us for our sins and God's determination to show us warm and tender compassion? It's resolved in the blood that was shed on Calvary. That in that place, God's justice and mercy kiss. And it was for you. Now, what was the motivator? This is love. It's not that we have loved God, but it's that he loved us. And how do we know he loves us? Because he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God loves you so much that Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. And by the blood that was shed at the cross, you have been taken from a position of straight anger and wrath because of sin and brought into a position in which now you are an adopted son or daughter of God, where he is fully for you and you get all the inheritance and all the promises are yours in Jesus Christ. <laughs> Oh my gosh. I don't know how that doesn't cause us to wake up in the morning and go, let's get after it. <laughs> and then I love this section here. They, being the redeemed, shall go after the Lord, and God will roar like a lion. Yes. And when he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. Just imagine that for a second. You hear a roaring lion, and you just, oh, what's that I hear? And instead of running away, ah, you go, I got to go to that voice. And they will come from the west and they shall come trembling like birds from Egypt. That is out of bondage. They will come like doves out of the land of Assyria, out of bondage. And God promises, I will return them to their homes. You see, when the lion roars, the children of God's ears prick up. And they hear the voice of their God. And they come from wherever they are because they know that voice is leading them home. I don't know if it's this verse or maybe it's Joel 3 where Joel writes, the Lord roars from Zion. His, he utters his voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and the earth quake, but the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. I don't know if it's Joel 3. I don't know if it's Hosea 11, but I ask myself the question, I wonder if verses like this were going through C.S. Lewis's mind when he wrote about Aslan in the Chronicles of Narnia. And I, I know, I use Chronicles of Narnia all the time. You should read the books. Some years ago, Heather gave me a, a gift, and it was a framed quotation from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, something I literally look at every single day. And it comes from a time when the four Pevensey children uh, are... In Narnia, they've gone through the wardrobe, they're wearing their fur coats, and they're going through the land, which is always winter and never Christmas. It's being plagued and dominated by the white witch, and they make their way to the beaver's hut. And as they're there in the beaver's hut, Mrs. Beaver and Mr. Beaver are making this delicious meal for them, and they begin to tell the Pevensey children about the uh, prophecies about Aslan. Now, if you know anything about Chronicles of Narnia, you know Aslan is the Jesus character in the story. And so Mr. Beaver is recounting to the children the importance of Aslan. 
the rumors are he's on the move. And all of Narnia is beginning to wake up. And so they're sitting there listening to this story, and they have this little rhyme, this little poem, that has been in the minds and hearts of the inhabitants of Narnia for many, many years. And it's this little rhyme that is in my office. And here's what it says. Wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. That's beautiful. The reason why it's so beautiful for me is because I know Aslan represents Jesus. So let me substitute Aslan with Jesus. Just listen. Wrong will be right when Jesus comes in sight. At the sound of Jesus' roar, sorrows will be no more. When Jesus bears his teeth or his fierceness, winter meets its death. And when Jesus shakes his mane or when Jesus, I don't know, shakes his hair or whatever, <laughs> we shall have spring again. For me, that means so much to me because I understand, I understand Jesus is called the Lion of Judah. And I understand that when Jesus roars, when his voice goes out, his children awaken. And when the children awaken to the roaring voice of Jesus, they come trembling to him, not in fear, but in trembling glory, that God would call us to himself. And when he roars and his voice goes out, we understand at that moment, oh, precious Jesus, he has taken away our sorrows. There's no more pain, there's no more tears, there's no more death. And what it reminds me of is what he taught us in this, I'm the good shepherd, John 10. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. And so the Jews, they were gathered around him and they're listening to Jesus talk. They said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, you don't believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep, they hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. I want you to picture for me. Jesus says, you are in my hand. And Jesus says, you are in the Father's hand. And you are double-fistedly secure in the love of God. And nothing and no one can separate you or snatch you out from God's loving grip of you. Now, if you wake up in the morning unstable, disoriented, not knowing if you're worthy, 
not knowing if you have any value, not knowing if you belong or are wanted, you can have a secure and stable foundation on which to build your life. If you build your life on one life-giving truth, God loves you. And so if you're here today and you hear his voice, don't do what Hosea 11.2 says. The more God calls you, the more they went away from him. Come to the Lord. And there you will find the joy that you seek, and the love that you desire, the belonging. And in fact, one of my favorite verses, the ransom of the Lord shall return they shall come home. And when they come to Zion, that is the presence of God, will come with singing. That's why we close our service with singing. Everlasting joy is gonna be on our heads. We shall obtain gladness and joy. And why? Because the Lion of Judah has roared and sorrow and sighing has flown away. Oh Lord, I pray. God, I desperately pray that you would Send out your voice and that you would call your children to yourself. God, that they would come to you trembling, not in fear, but trembling with the glorious thought that you love them. That though they deserve nothing, though they have rebelled against you in tremendous and profound ways, you have relentlessly pursued your people placing your love upon them. And God, you will forgive. You will restore. You will redeem. And I pray, Lord, that you help us to cast our imaginations and our minds upon the great and deep and profound love that you have for us in sending Jesus to be our propitiation, to turn your wrath away from us and to turn your loving affection upon us in full measure, overflowing, abounding with no end, ever and ever. And thank you for calling us home, that we can come into your presence, for we know in Psalm 1611, in your presence is the fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So God, we, the people of God, we are the recipients of your love and grace, and we thank you for it. Call your children home, and we'll give you the thanks for what you do. For your glory and for our joy we pray, amen.